According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes to the Scriptures. We can turn to Philippians 4 tonight. Well, we will resume our study from one week ago. We were not in Philippians on Sunday morning, so we'll pick up from last Wednesday night. Philippians 4, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. We'll be taking a look at uh, kind of tying those details together and looking at 15 through 19. Uh, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. And what happens when you're down to your last supporter? And what happens when your last supporter stops? And so now you're down to less than your last supporter. And that's where Paul was. And so uh, these things become quite interesting. All right, before we get started, let's admit, take a moment for silent prayer. Ask our Father for His blessings on our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for our time in your word, looking forward, Father, to the feast that you have provided for us. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I know we have some questions tonight because I was clued in to a couple of them this morning when uh, some of the guys that were meeting for Wednesday morning said, I'm going to have a question for you tonight. I said, okay, I have a question. <coughs> so I believe Bill had a question. I think Wes had a question. I think Doug had a question. I didn't see the email. So let's get a microphone to Bill. We'll start with Bill. <coughs> uh, yeah, I sent you an email asking about the Greek word uh, koinos. Oh, that email. Yeah, yeah, yeah I saw that. Um, it, I, I found it kind of interesting because in Jude it's translated common. In mm -hmm. other places uh, in Scripture, I know in Acts, I think, 22... I don't remember the scripture, but in two or three other places, that's uh, koinos that is also is translated as unholy, and there's another uh, <coughs> translation similar to unholy. So I just found it kind of interesting, and I was wondering if you could explain why it has such a variant mm -hmm. of uh, translations, because common and unholy are two to totally different things. Yeah, it seems like it, but they're really not, and, and so I'll explain. So yeah, in Jude 3... Jude says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all handed down to the saints. And so that word common is the koinos you're asking about. And so whether you click on common there or whether you come over here and click on koinos here, either way, you can uh, pull that up and do your word study on koinos. And... Um, so the, the, the essential idea is something that's shared, something that's common. That's the root idea behind koinos, is that it's shared. That's why the Koine Greek is the common Greek. When Alexander had to take Doric and Ionic and Corinthian, all these different Greek dialects, and Macedonian, he wasn't even a Greek, he was a Macedonian, and take all these different Greek dialects and put them together into a Koine, into a common Greek, that's what that's about. And that's why fellowship is koinonia, because when you have fellowship, you have things in common. That's fellowship or koinoneo. 
or soon koinoneo, as we've been seeing in, in uh, Philippians, and even the fellowship of the sufferings, or even the fellowship of, of the afflictions that we've been looking at have koinos terms. So um, yeah, it all comes from this family, and the koinos family is pretty extensive, or maybe not, that's kind of modest actually, koinonia, koinos, koinao, koinonos, koinoneo, soon koinonos, soon koinoneo, and koinonikos. All right, and you got adjectives and adverbs and, and other expressions all through there. So the idea though, so where does it come across to unholy then? And that, that really comes across in, the, in, in a theological concept, and it comes from the Old Testament, it comes from the Hebrew, uh, but the idea is, is that if it's, the idea of being holy means it's set apart to God, set apart for God's use, set apart for God's good pleasure. And so you have some things that are holy, and then some vessels, for example, that are for common use, you know, because they're not set apart for God's good pleasure. So, you know, you've got the drinking vessels that you have for the temple service, and then the drinking vessels you have just, you know, around the house for, for whatever. So uh, that's, that's why if it's common, then it's in contrast to what's sanctified or what's set apart is... Uh, so it's like a common unholiness, you know, kind of like what it was speaking of in, I think, Acts 22. Uh, probably, yes. And so unclean, common, unholy, these are the different ways that it's rendered. Acts 10, Acts 10, uh, 14, Acts 10, 28, Acts 11, 8. And that, yeah, it's just a conceptual idea of what's common as opposed to what's set apart. So it's special as opposed to ordinary or for God's good pleasure as opposed to whatever else. All right. My uh, other question real quick is... And Chris, you can open that door if you want. I think you're you're blocking it. All right. Is uh, Jude 21? Jude 21. Yes, sir. Uh Uh, Keep yourselves in the love of God. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and you asked me about that this morning, and I said, you know, I want to look at that, and I, I forgot. Uh, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting anxiously. It's, it's a marvelous expression. Let me simply add a note to this, um, and that way I can follow up. It, it's puzzled me every time I read it. Mm-hmm. So several times, I just I haven't I haven't been satisfied through the different uh, commentaries I've read. I haven't been satisfied with the answer of what it means to keep yourselves. In the love of God. Well, especially since Romans 8 says, what can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? Neither life nor death nor things present nor things to come nor any created thing. What can separate us from the love? So if nothing can separate us from the love of God, then why bother having an imperative saying, keep yourself in the love of God? So, um, so I'm going to look at this because you got the Romans 8 question compared to Jude 21. And uh, I'll get this ready for next week and have that, uh, have that ready to go. Because it's a neat question. I will say, though, that in Romans 8, the idea of, of not being separated from the love of God is for individuals as we are redeemed, saved. You know, it's an eternal security passage, essentially, that we are, uh, in Romans 8, there's no condemnation, there's no separation. And so in Christ, we can't lose our salvation, we can't be separated from the love of God. This passage, however, is not an individual text. It's related to the corporate, uh, the, the body of believers there. In fact, the verse before verse 21, uh, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. That's a corporate function for the body of Christ as we edify one another, as we serve one another, as we pray together. 
keep yourselves plural, you know, as a flock, as a church, as a, as a body of believers, uh, keep yourselves plural in the love of God. And so I think that's, that's got more of a corporate emphasis, and that's why I want to study it this week and have a better answer for you next week so yeah, that a church can be walking in love. Yeah, because if you look at like the, the verse you mentioned all the way down to, to 24 or 25, it all, it all seems to have a corporate, it's all plural. Everything mm-hmm. you mentioned there is plural. So Yes, it's all plural related to the local assembly. Right. Thank you. All right, no, thank you. All right, now, Doug, you had a question also? First uh, Samuel sixteen fourteen. That's where it starts, actually. Uh, okay. An evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him? Yeah. Yeah. An evil spirit from the Lord. Right. Just, uh, who is that? And what's um, that about? <laughs> I don't know his name, but it's an evil spirit, and he's from the Lord. Uh, the <laughs> Okay, that's the silly answer. But first, uh, what goes, here's a great passage to go with this. 1 Kings 22, 22. Okay. I can always remember 2222 because that's the road that goes west uh, out, of, out of Austin. But um, 1 Kings 2222 talks about a scene in heaven where you've got uh, God is asking for volunteers, right? And he, he wants uh, Ahab, King Ahab is going to go and fall at Ramoth Gilead. So in a context here, this is the prophet Micaiah. He says in verse 19, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. Remember, when you've got a right and left separation, that means we're talking about elect on the one hand and fallen on the other hand, right? Like sheep and goats. Well, here's the hosts of heaven, elect angels, fallen angels. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do, right? Go and do so. And so this gives us kind of an interesting kind of backstory to heavenly politics, angelic politics, you know, because there's fallen angels that would just love to, to attack a believer, right? Satan couldn't wait to get his hands on Job, for example. And uh, these guys are, are standing in line waiting because... This is not just a Jew, it's a king. It's a Jewish king they're going to make fall on the battlefield. So that's, that's kind of fun, right? From, for a fallen angel, you know. So I think that's what we have in view then when an evil spirit from the Lord terrorizes Saul is that Saul has been given over. God's judgment function has given permiss- permissive will for a, a fallen angel then to come and, and afflict Saul. And, and we see that again and again. It got so bad, the demonism got so bad in, in Saul's life that not even David's uh, music playing was able to to soothe it or calm it on those occasions. So that's that's yeah, you're in pretty deep angelic conflict at that point. That's that's where Saul was. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. All right, and Wes, did you have a question too? So there's 264 widely accepted miracles in the Bible. This morning we were talking about the Book of Daniel of another one that you considered a miracle. I was wondering if it are there any other events that you consider miracles that aren't on that list that you can think of? Oh, that's a great question. Things that are not normally thought of as miracles that were quite likely miraculous and how God provided. I'd have to think about that. That's uh, 
So we were talking this morning about Daniel chapter 1 and when Daniel and his friends didn't want to defile themselves with the choice meal. We're familiar with this because Nebuchadnezzar had assigned their, uh, their diet and Daniel made up his money. He gave them Babylonian names. He put them in the Babylonian school. He gave them the Babylonian diet, all the choice foods from his own table. And Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. And we don't know all the details. Wine is not in itself defiling. And we don't even know what kind of food is, you know, could have been pork or some unclean thing that a Jew couldn't eat. But, but there's nothing defiling about wine unless there's a connection with idolatry. If somehow the wine had been poured out as a libation to Marduk or one of the Babylonian gods, or if uh, the, the meat had been sacrificed to idols and so forth, whatever the case was, Daniel's conscience was not, was not good with eating this, this meat and, uh, and drinking this wine. And so he makes this request. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. And then this phrase in verse 9, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. Now, depending on where you move your comma there, uh, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. You could read it like that. Or God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. Um, in any event, he gets a test for 10 days. He gets to eat vegetables only and then, um, and then he gets inspected and after 10 days later they were, they were fatter than all the other servants and the, the guy was happy and said, okay, you can keep, you can keep doing the vegetable diet because uh, and, he knew he wasn't going to be in trouble. He knew that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't going to catch him or anything like that. So I think this is a miracle. I don't think this is just natural. I think this is God's divine provision that he sustained those boys because we know that his hand was upon them. We know uh, not only were they fatter than the other youths, but they also, uh, as to these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. So God was imputing information. It's like, you know, he's causing them to be tops of their class at the university because this is better than, than the Matrix, you know, jacking into the back of the skull with jujitsu or whatever, right? And so God is imputing this knowledge to these boys. I think He's also physically sustaining these boys in spite of their deficient vegetarian diet related to that. But see, the pro-vegetarian people point to this and say, see, look, look, it's biblical and, and you're just as good as a meat eater. If you, well, I think this is miraculous just based upon the, and I would hate to take a miracle out of the Bible and say that's normal and how I'm going to base my life and, and claim it as normal when clearly it's not normal. And so that's the thing there. And so are there other instances like that that aren't typically listed uh, as a miracle in the Bible uh, that we probably should, should consider as, as a miracle? Probably so. I'll have to think about other things that, uh, that I would consider miraculous. So let me give, give that some thought and get back to you on that. All right. Anything else tonight? Other questions? This is good. You came uh, ready with these questions, Bill? I'm just kind of curious what this list is that lists the miracles. Oh, there's different lists. There's different books. I don't know which one Wes was talking about, but all the miracles of the Bible, for example, or sometimes uh, there might even be a, a Logos utility that has, uh, that has this. Um, let's see if they have miracles. 
Yeah, Miracles of the Bible. That's an interactive media here. And so um, you, can go, you can run through these, 264 Miracles of the Bible. And this is kind of fun too. If you ever want to play with this, I recommend this. Um, you can spend hours doing this stuff. So um, you've got all the different classifications for miracles. Some are healing, nature, provision, judgment, exorcism. You've got these classifications here on the left. And, and uh, if you want to sort it by you know, the Bible text or by the type, uh, you know, like just look at the healing miracles. You can just zero in on those. If you want to look at the book of the Bible where they're found, uh, the agent, who is it that's doing the miracle? Jesus did most of the miracles. Um, you know, the patient, the location. There's just lots of ways you can classify and sort. And then you can start to narrow it down. And so this kind of becomes interesting too as you select, okay, I only want to look at the seven miracles that Elijah the prophet did. All right, so let's look at those. And then, uh, you know, you bring up the text and you start working through that way. So this is a nifty utility. You can do this. We also had one this morning we were talking about the names of God. And that's another tool. Uh, interactive media, the names of God. And uh, this is a fun one too because there's 13,034. And well, that seems like a lot, but Yahweh is 5,330 of those. Okay, So every time Yahweh is used as a name of God, it gets put on that list. And that happens 5,330 times. And then Theos is used 1,755 times. And Elohim is used 996 times. And, and so this is another nifty utility too as well that you can you can uh, sort and classify and, and, and work these things through. There's, there's a lot of those interactive medias that they've added. They started adding them in, in Logos 7 and they've really amplified them in Logos 8. And uh, so I encourage you to pick up that. If not the uh, program, get the app and just start playing with some of these interactive medias and you'll have some fun with those. So. Alright, good question on that. Well, let's go to Philippians 4 and let's uh, resume where we left on Wednesday a week ago. Wednesday a week ago. We did not have a Philippians class Sunday morning, so appreciate Fassel being with us. That was a thrill and, uh, and a privilege. So good to have uh, Fassel and his teaching from 1 Corinthians 16 and then the missionary report from uh, Pakistan. Not a, a friendly country towards Christianity. at 98% Muslim in, uh, in Pakistan. But good information there. All right, Philippians 4. Uh, of course, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. We were looking at it in verse 13, and this talks about our competence, and really, the translation, I presently continuously have strength for all conditional circumstances of personal life. That's what it comes down to. I have strength. That's the I can do application. I have strength for all conditional circumstances of personal life. The whole paragraph is talking about conditional circumstances of personal life. You have a lot of money, you have a little money, you have something in between. You have a lot of health, you have no health, uh, you're sick. All these circumstances of life. And in any circumstance of life, whatever end of the spectrum we're on, God's grace is sufficient. And so we can do all things. And we don't want to abuse verse 13 or claim it as an artificial promise that says you know, that we can claim superpowers or extra strength or or, you know, I can do all things, meaning, you know, I'm not Superman. I can't fly or, you know, bend uh, steel with my bare hands or, or deflect bullets, you know. 
That's an abuse of the text. When it says, I can do all things, the all things is, is defined for us right here. Uh, when he talks about any and all circumstances in verse 12, in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret. And so it centers on our attitude and it centers on his strength. He is the one presently continuously enduing us with power. So as he keeps pouring his power into us, we have strength for all conditional circumstances. All right. And then on to verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Paul can function contentedly without the Philippian support. He did not need their money. They, they sent him money and he's very thankful for it. That's why he's writing this. He's very thankful for the money that they sent him. But he doesn't need it. He was content without it. He was content with, uh, uh, he he says, I know how to abound, I know how to be humble. That's verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. And that's what we're going to see repeated tonight is that prosperity. So he's fine in all those circumstances. But then he says, nevertheless, it is a good thing. It is a good thing. You have done well to share with me in my affliction. And that's the, that's the well-done, good and faithful servant. That's what's well-pleasing to the Lord, is that they identified with Paul's need and they wanted to come alongside in a spiritual ministry of support. And that's what it comes down to. The, the cash is just icing on the cake. The money is just extra, you know? The fact that they love him, that they care for him, that they're joining with him in his struggle, that's, that makes all the difference in the world. And we're going to see that also tonight too when we examine the priestly language that's used here. All right. And so it is good for them to share in his affliction. Synchronized fellowship of Paul's afflictions. That's what we're talking about. Not only is it koinoneo, koinoneo is our word for fellowship, but soon koinoneo. So you might call it like I did here, synchronized fellowship. They're, they're participating in his afflictions. They are so in tune with what he's going through, it's like they're going through it themselves. They are experiencing it themselves vicariously through their fellowship with the Apostle Paul. Like they're participating in his affliction. They're partakers. Financial missionary support is called the fellowship sharing in the matter of giving and receiving. All right? There's other ways we can fellowship. But when we fellowship financially, that's what we're doing. It's a fellowship. And so there's other forms of giving, not just cash giving, of course. You can give of your ministry, you can give of your time, you can give of your personal uh, involvement and, and participation. But when you are participating financially, it's called fellowship sharing in the matter of giving and receiving. It's a credit and debits, an accounting term. We've got more accounting terms that we're going to see here tonight. The Philippian Grace financial support was Paul's only financial support during a significant stage of his second missionary journey. You know, when you think about it, when you're, when you're on a missionary trip and you have a certain uh, budget and you have a certain funds that got you going and you're out there and, and you're farther than you've ever been before, because remember, they crossed over to Europe. They went from Turkey, they went from Asia Minor, they had crossed to Philippi, they had gone to Europe. They're the first Christian missionaries we know about that took the gospel to Europe. And when he gets there, when he gets to Philippi, and then he gets to Thessalonica, he's as far away from his base of support as he's ever been, and he starts losing this support, and it starts to drop, and it starts, now it's gone. 
as we read about it here, he says uh, at the first preaching, verse 15 of Philippians 4, at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. And you know, it's a significant stage because not only has, have the funds dried up, but now where is he? He's in Corinth. He's in the middle of a schismatic group of, of brethren, <laughs> okay, dearly beloved, and three-fourths of them aren't supporting him at all. Only one-fourth is, is in his camp, if you will. The others are wishing that it would be Peter instead, or Apollos, or, or Jesus, right? And, and these four groups in Corinth, they were so schismatic. And what a significant stage on this second missionary journey. So I just encourage you to read through Acts 17, read through the first few verses of Acts 18, and you'll see this. It's also mentioned in 2 Corinthians 11.9, where he makes a, a passing comment, I think, in this uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 9. It says, When I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you, and I will continue to do so. And so that's his testimony there. And had, had that money not come from Macedonia, they'd have, you know, kept making tents and kept working side jobs and doing what he was doing to uh, not uh, burden the Corinthians. All right, and so there's the issue there. In the realm of grace giving, it is the giver that eternally profits in the heavenly ledger. And this is so important. I think you get it. We've talked about it. Um, but recognize that in God's accounting system, right, in God's accounting system, it's the giver that profits, not the receiver. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And uh, this is the principle here. And it's given in verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. That's completely spiritual in God's record-keeping system. That's not the way things operate here on earth. All right, in, in, here on earth, if I pull you know twenty bucks out of my pocket and hand it to you, you profited. You profited. You just got twenty bucks out of my pocket, and and I lost twenty bucks. I don't know why I gave it to you, but I did. Okay, and so you profited because I handed it to you. Not in God's record, right? In grace giving. When you as unto the Lord are supporting the ministry of the Word of God, when you as unto the Lord are supporting uh, His His will, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And it is the profit which increases to your account. The Philippians paid for Paul's support, but it was the Philippians who were profiting. It's called laying up treasure in heaven, as Jesus talks about it in uh, Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. It's uh, spoken of in Proverbs. And I know we looked at these before, but it's been a week and some of us have slept since then. Proverbs nineteen seventeen. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. He will repay him for his good deed. So and think about it. You know, you're, you're gracious towards a poor man and how does God reconcile that in his ledger, in his book? He credits that to his own account and says, all right, now I owe you. God does the payback. He will repay him for his good deed. And uh, I think that's a neat statement there for laying up treasure in heaven. Luke 14, likewise. What kind of parties do you throw? Who do you invite to your parties? 
are you inviting rich, fancy people so that uh, when they come to your party that uh, they'll, they'll remember you and think kindly of you and they're going to pay you back down the road? He says, don't invite the rich, fancy people. He said, uh, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return and that will be your repayment. And you get this mutual supportive, you know, mutual admiration society that just keeps throwing parties for one another. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for it will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And man, there's, a, there's an application there, I tell you. And it's when you are serving someone that has no possible means to, to pay you back, what a, what a joy. All right, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Real quickly, we'll just run through these and then we'll cover new ground tonight. 1 Timothy 6. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but fix their hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. The reason why He's provided abundantly so that you can enjoy how good He is. And uh, course if you lose your spiritual perspective you know satan can make you rich too and that's not for you to enjoy <laughs> okay uh, so we, we want to understand this instruct them to be good to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share how terrible is it if god makes you rich but then you don't follow up by being rich in good works and uh, generous and ready to share storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed and they think they're living the good life and they haven't taken hold of life indeed. Remember Jesus talked about that rich man. He had so much he needed to tear down his barns and build bigger barns because it never once crossed his mind that his barns were perfectly fine and then whatever doesn't fit in the barns, go ahead and just share it. There's folks that need it. Never crossed his mind. The only thing he could think of was I need bigger barns because I don't want to share a nickel. That, that was his attitude. And Jesus said, you fool. Call him a fool said, tonight your soul is required of you. And now who's going to own your barns, right? Hebrews 10, 34. If your house gets confiscated, are you going to rejoice? These guys did. Hebrews 10, 34. Remember the, verse 32 says, remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings. We believe that Hebrews was written to former Levitical priests. And they had gotten saved after Pentecost and they had named the name of Christ and boy, that didn't sit well with, uh, with their peers. <laughs> you know, you can imagine a very quick expulsion from the Sanhedrin and the very quick consequences. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. It's a fellowship opportunity to suffer with the body of Christ. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. Imagine that. So, you know, take yourself away from America. Take yourself away from a culture where it's safe and protected and you don't, you don't get tortured for, for being a Christian. Not here, not yet. Okay? But imagine a place where um, your, your brother gets arrested for being a Christian, like some of these underground Christian, uh, uh, Chinese Christians that we met at Voice of the Martyrs this weekend. And they get busted up for having a home church and say you have an illegal church and, and you're going to jail. Two years you spent in, in jail for having an illegal church. Right? 
And then they come to you and say, are you part of that church too? Are you with them? What are you going to say? You know? I, how many of us would be bigger than Peter saying, oh no, I don't know that man. I wasn't even there. I've, you know, never heard of the man. I wasn't in town that weekend. You're just, you start denying everything left and right till the rooster crows and you go, ooh. <laughs> See, Jesus nailed Peter, didn't he, that night? Well, these guys, they were not like Peter. These guys identified with those that were in prison and um, suffered right with them, accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. You know, when you lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, where political forces don't confiscate your house, okay? He's gone to prepare a dwelling place for us. And it's, it's waiting for us. We'll get there when, when He takes us there. Alright, so in the realm of grace giving it is the giver that eternally profits in the heavenly ledger. Point five now, verses 18 and 19. Paul's final comment regarding the Philippian gift places this aspect of local church ministry firmly within the priesthood function of the body of Christ. He uses priestly language to describe the financial gift that they sent to Paul in, uh, in prison. Philippians 4, verses 18 and 19. Paul's final comment regarding the Philippian gift places this aspect of local church ministry firmly within the priesthood function of the body of Christ. Think about it. This is our priestly ministry. We talk about our soldier function in the angelic conflict. We talk about our ambassadorial function as uh, representatives of the kingdom of heaven when we preach the gospel, when we, when we uh, identify as pilgrims and strangers. This world is not our home. We have a, an ambassadorial function because we're ambassadors for Christ. We have a soldier function because uh, our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against rulers and powers and authorities. An ambassadorial function, a soldier function, but this one I think is biggest of all is our priestly function. Every church age believer priest, we are priests before the Father. That's why we have the book of Hebrews in our Bible. We are priests before the Father. And one of our best priestly functions that we have is giving. Grace giving is a priestly function. In the Old Testament, the priests and Levites, they were centered, they had a tithe. Tithing was a part of the Old Testament priestly function. So it shouldn't shock us that grace giving is a part of New Testament priestly function. That's a part of what we do in our priesthood. And when he calls it a sweet-smelling savor, that's the language of sacrifices. So verse 18, I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. That is, I am abounding. Same language we had earlier in verse 12. So I've received everything in full, and I am abounding. I am amply supplied. Really, it is I have been filled. I have been filled. Having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. And here's what he calls it. A fragrant aroma. An acceptable sacrifice. Well pleasing to God. If it's not well pleasing to God then you're burning strange fire and you're subject to uh, discipline. (laughs) You're subject to God's wrath uh, on wicked uh, priestly um, idolatry. But this is pure, uh, well-pleasing, sacrificial service. It is a fragrant aroma. It is an acceptable sacrifice, 
well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply your need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Here it is. I think this is another restatement of what we have in verse 17. They sent funds, but they're not going to suffer for what they sent. My God will supply all your need. That uh, they're not uh, they're not going to hurt because they supported Paul. Paul has been filled. They will be filled, and uh, the language returns it back to them in in verse nineteen. So we'll talk about that as well. Not a gimmick, not a not a uh, an artificial thing. You know where you name it and claim it, and and you cast your bread on the waters, and you think that God has to return to you a hundredfold, and then you get mad when He doesn't. You say, "Well, man, I." I put 20 bucks in the grace plate, how come I don't have $2,000 by now, right? Because I, I read a verse somewhere, or some prosperity preacher said, I get back a hundredfold. You're uh, treating the Bible like a gimmick and you're treating God like a, a, a genie in a bottle, like you're rubbing it and getting your wishes. Not how it works, okay? Not how it works. But my God will supply your need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So it's a priestly function. And it uses the language of Old Testament, New Testament, priestly function in this regard. All right. He says three things. I am, I am, and I have been. I am receiving. I am abounding. I have been filled. I have been filled. So the three verbs in verse 18 are remarkable. I am receiving. The verb is apecho. I am receiving. Uh, I think it's awkward. In English, it's awkward to take something that's completed and and talk about it in the present tense. So I I understand why they said, I have received everything in full. And they put it in kind of a past tense. Um, But literally, it's a present tense verb in the Greek. I have received, I am receiving, I am in possession of what you sent. It's actually it's, it's a technical term. It's used of a receipt. You would write uh, on a receipt if, uh, if uh, somebody made a delivery to your, to your business and uh, he delivered something, whatever, he delivered 100 bricks to your, uh, to your company. And then you would, on the invoice then, you would write apecho. This is the verb. You would write apecho. And it's a term that means I, ha- I am having, I have received. And in the present tense, you know, I still have it. <laughs> I am received. And this really is, Jesus used this idiom in Matthew chapter 6. So we should be familiar with it. Matthew chapter 6. Because this is how they would write their receipts in the ancient world. Okay. There have been receipts as long as there have ever been CPAs. Okay, <laughs> there have been receipts. There have been when, when human beings are interacting with one another, and human beings want to trade fairly, and human beings want to conduct their business honorably and above board, where there's no question, uh, then receipts are good things because you have it in writing, and here it is, and, and we're good. And uh, the guy can't come along later and say, "Well, you know." I delivered more and you didn't pay me enough. So it's remarkable how uh, archaeology uh, has discovered all of these receipts everywhere and, uh, <laughs> and I know why. All right. Because I married an accountant. 
and because they insist on saving receipts. And so archaeologists will be digging them up 3,000 years from now, and they're going to be running through. Okay, And that's what we're reading here. We're reading about a receipt. Paul said, I am giving you the receipt for everything you sent through Epaphroditus. Jesus used it when he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before man to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. If your Christian walk is just a show, if you're here putting on a show trying to impress somebody, that's not Christianity. And if that's what you're doing, you're not going to get rewarded for that. You're just putting on a show for a human being to be impressed with you. That's pathetic. And so he says, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. You know, when you're back there doing your business at the grace box on your way out the door, you know, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. That's, that's between you and the Lord. You don't need to stand there and blow a trumpet and say, hey, everybody, watch me. Look at me. Here's what I'm doing. Look at, look at all this money I'm pouring into this thing. We don't want to do that. We don't want to watch you. You don't want to be watched. The Lord sees this, okay? And then he says, truly I say to you, they, ap echo, they have their reward in full. God writes their receipt right there for him and says, here's your receipt, right? Here's your receipt. Because the only reward you're getting is those people you impressed. <laughs> whoever it was, I hope, I hope they stay impressed, you know, because, you know, whoever you impressed and they went, ooh, right? Because they were impressed. And, and that, that's all you're getting. That little ooh, that's your reward. That's your receipt. Jesus says, I'm signing your receipt right here, app echo, that's your receipt. You're getting nothing at the, at the judgment seat of Christ. All you're getting is that ooh when you impressed somebody. And he uses it three times in this, in this uh, chapter. Okay? Because in verse 5, when you pray, let me read the rest of this. So I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, how sneaky is that? Right? That's, that's, uh, that shows you how sneaky, how unobtrusive, how private, how you're not showing off. No one should even know. This between you and the Lord. So that your giving will be in secret. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And um, that's, that's, you can't beat grace. Grace is what it is. See, this building was paid by grace. This whole ministry has thrived in grace. And I tell you, there's legalists that can't understand it. There's unbelievers that can't understand it. Because we don't take money from unbelievers. We say, no thanks. God provides through His children who want to give in grace. All right, prayer. Same illust- or different illustration, same principle. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they still love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. When you come to prayer meeting on a Wednesday night, it's not performance art. You're not coming to wax eloquent and impress people with, ooh, wow, that person can really pray. It's not about that. We're not here impressing one another with our prayer rhetoric we're just brothers and sisters that love the Lord and, and are pouring ourselves out before the Lord. And I love it. And so, uh, again, if you're trying to impress somebody, if you want somebody to go, ooh, what a great 
Well, that's your reward. That's all you're getting. Jesus says, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. That's ap echo. Here's your receipt. Right? Here's your receipt. Say. And then, uh, so that's giving and that's praying. And then there's fasting. Down to verse 16. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy 